0: You don't change meeting culture. You don't change your collaboration culture. You change these micro habits and it takes time, but you know what? You're going to be showing up to work anyways. Might as well try to make it better because if you make it better for your team, those four to eight people, you make it better for yourself.
1: Groups are a microcosm of life and the greater systems in which we live and work. We learn so much about ourselves and others in groups. They refine our leadership and communication skills They highlight our growth edges and capacity for conflict. And being on a team can bring out the best and the worst in us, sometimes at lightning speed. What comes up for you when you think about your group or team experiences? And when preparing to join or lead a group or a team, what fears or concerns go through your mind? All right, for me, I actually love working or playing on a great team. It's truly one of my favorite things. I know that may sound weird, but it really brings me a lot of joy. On the other hand, I deeply loathe working or playing on a poorly led group or team. I do not run lukewarm in this area, and I suspect I'm not alone. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with humans who navigate life's challenges and lead in their own ways. Our goal is to learn how they address the burdens they carry, how they learn from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. When it comes to working on teams, I have no middle ground. I either enjoy them or I deeply dread them. This polarized feeling about working on teams stems back to my experience in school Working on group projects and playing on sports teams. Now, in school, when I saw a group project on the syllabus for the year, I'd cringe. So often, these projects felt like just busy work, something to fill the time that did not hold much purpose for learning. They, they did not make sense to me, and I never felt taught or mentored by my teachers and never really understood the purpose. Often the directions for these groups felt like a one-size-fits-all for everyone, and there was a lot of space for mediocrity and dialing it in while one or two people did the bulk of the work. And I see my kids going through the same thing in their schooling right now, too. Now, as a group, often assigned by the teacher, which could be really awkward depending on who you're placed with, we all kind of flailed with our varying agendas and working styles. Now, the process of assigning who does what and when to meet up and figuring out the work that needs to be done usually was rushed. Depending on who was in the group, the meetups were fun and more social, but work rarely got done. You may recall some of these experiences too. I often felt it would be easier to do things independently, which, for better or for worse, partnered well with my tendency to overcommit and overfunction, right? Not a great combo for sure or I would fixate on who did their part and who was not. And I don't know, that was just exhausting and not helpful or enjoyable. Okay. But on the other hand, I loved playing on sports teams growing up. The way things were set up made more sense to me. I loved how we all had a role to play in our positions. The goal was to back each other up if we made a mistake, and when someone hit a home run or scored a goal, we all felt the victory. Sure, there were stars on the team, but the best teams I played on were ones where we all felt we had a place and contributed top of the lineup or bottom of the lineup, starter or backup, and the best coaches were the ones who guided us individually well so we could collectively play well together while also striving for the win. We'd practice regularly together, doing the drills and putting in the reps on our individual and collective skills. Now, we all had varying abilities, but the habits we developed together in practicing often changed us personally and as a team. I know sports are rife with many problematic issues, but I'm grateful my experiences were positive for the most part, and they helped grow my sense of love for working on a team with a shared vision and mission. And my time working on group projects during school taught me how to lead a team or be on a team, along with the power of positive habits. Now, as I reflect on these influences on my relationships with working on teams, I see how working in politics, especially political campaigns and international youth work, connected me to that team feeling. But my corporate work felt more, not always, but mostly like the assigned group projects I experienced in school. Every week without fail, I hear stories from my clients and their frustrating and too often harmful experiences working in teams. I hear the pain of working with a team member that drags everyone down without support for change and about burdened systems, rules and bureaucracies stifling creativity and energy. This is why I am so excited to welcome back today's Unburdened Leader guest to the show and dive deep into his latest book on team habits. He addresses the many pain points of teamwork with actionable ways to make meaningful changes through our team habits. Charlie Gilkey helps people do their best work and work better together. He founded Productive Flourishing, he's an executive coach, and is the author of Team Habits and also the critically acclaimed bestselling Start Finishing. He lives with his wife, Angela, in Portland, Oregon. Now, as you listen to this show today, pay attention to Charlie's reflection on the impact teams can have to improve lives and not just create more work. Listen to Charlie's approach to changing a system or team that is not working in ways that can avoid burnout and checking out. And notice Charlie's insight that every action you take in a team context is a social action and not an individual one. Let that sink in. All right, y'all. Now, please welcome back Charlie Gilkey to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Charlie, so glad you're here again. Thank you for coming back.
0: Rebecca, thanks so much for having me. I am pumped to be here just to have the conversation with you generally, but also specifically to talk about teamwork and, and working better together. So thanks for having me.
1: First, congratulations on your new book, Team Habits. Thank you. How Small Actions Lead to Extraordinary Results. This whole book is just speaking my system's love language. i I'm probably going to read it a couple more times because you really have a lot of just very clear and simple nuggets in here and in your book you talk about that everyone has the power to change team habits and i want to start off by hearing more how is your vision to democratize who is a part of an organization's decision making process different from conventional wisdom and how the heck is it connected to team habits
0: there's like five questions in there so i know i love I know. it it's great it's great so let me let me do some unpacking real quick so for our conversation, when I say team, I mean the four to eight people that you spend 80% of your time working with day in, day out. And that's important because a lot of times, especially if you're in an organization, you'll say my team and you're referencing 50 people. That's your group, right? That's your department. That's your unit. That's not your team. Your team is this four to eight people that again, you work with day in and day out. And in that report, so Rebecca, for today's call, we're going to be on a, we're, we're a team. So just, just for, um, for ease of communication. So like in, in our team, Rebecca, if our meetings suck, I could come to you and say, hey, Rebecca, like this ain't working for you. It ain't working for me. <laughs> like, like, can we do something a little bit different? And you're probably be like, yeah, it's not working for me too. Like, I don't need to go to our team leader or manager or CEO to have that conversation mm-hmm. because we have this rapport, right? And I think so many people give up their relationships with these wonderful people that they work with day in and day out and defer that to management or senior leaders. Totally. Versus just saying, you know what, we're in this together. Like, I'm not thinking about, well, I might be thinking about quitting, but I might not tell you that, but like, we're gonna show up to work every day anyways. So how about we work better together? And that is one of the cores of team habits that I want people to come back to. And, and Rebecca, the the book came from when I was giving so many talks about start finishing. Like I was on the book tour, that's my previous book. Start finishing how to go from idea to done. And to a T, I was like, I know the questions I'm going to get from these org folks, right? A manager would raise her hand and he would be like, you know, these are really great ideas. How can we get senior leadership to buy off on them? And I talk about things like focus blocks, which is, you know, 90 to 120 minute block of time where you can do your deep, significant mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. And he's like, Yeah, we need more of those, but how can we get management to to like buy out and sign off? And I'm like, hold on, hold on. So you're telling me, manager, that over the course of a week, you and your teammates can't find three focus blocks to sort of disappear and do some work during the work week. That's impossible for you to do. And they'd be like, it's oh shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we could do that. And I'm like, so If you can do it already, why do you need to go talk to senior leadership about it? And be like, but our calendars though, like we have this stupid policy where people can just put meetings on their calendars. Like who decided that? Who decided that that was the way? It's like, you're saying that you can't change that? Well, crap, (laughs) right? And so every objection, it came down to that is a team habit that you've changed. So that's the team side of it. Habit is just the unconscious ways in which we act. And the difference between a team habit and an individual habit that people do is that as a team, we say, hey, we this is what we do here. And there's a cumulative power to people acting in concert in a certain way, right? There's a cumulative power that happens with that. So Rebecca, you might have a weekly planning process that you sort of squirrel away and do yourself. Mm-hmm. And I might have a weekly pro- planning process that I squirrel away and do yourself. But what happens when we come together and say, hey, We both, it turns out, do our weekly planning on Monday morning. How about instead of us having a meeting Monday morning, we have our weekly team meeting Monday afternoon after we've done our planning for the week so that we can come to the meeting prepared. Just because we as a team have decided to conjoin those habits, it gives us an additional force multiplication. And that's Mm -hmm. what's super, super important. Okay. Okay. So team, team habits, I'm building up to answering your sort of five-part answer. But before I do, you have a question, so go ahead or an insight or something.
1: Yeah, I just want to check in, though, too. Like, What do you think is contributes to folks losing or thinking they don't have agency in their organization to m- make these small and important adjustments and changes, or even to be curious, or even to say, I disagree, or can we do it better? Because it's like I have to check with management. I, I feel, they feel so constrained. They feel afraid of doing anything that's going to break the rule. Like there's the, That's a theme I hear and I see on the regular. And then when you just were talking about that exchange that you had during your last book tour, and people are like, "Oh yeah," like it's like they forget I can I can do this. What do you think contributes to that?
0: The valorization of labels. You're a manager. You're a leader. You're an executive. Therefore, you make those decisions. I'm not a manager, I'm not a leader, I'm not a senior, I don't get to make decisions. Wow. Um, and that's part of the very structure that our society sells. We go, to, we go to get an MBA so we can be a manager, so we can make decisions and so that we can do things. And we don't, I think, realize the inverse of that is that we think if we're not that person, I don't have agency. Now, what's important for our listeners, if they don't already know this about me, is I have an army background. <laughs> And the military, the United States Department of Defense and, and our sister forces do a fantastic job of breaking that mindset down. Like whenever there are two people, like there's, a, there's this thing that, you know, in, in field leadership, whenever there are two soldiers doing something together, someone's in charge. Right. And it might not be the person with the highest rank, but mm. you learn a lot of things about collaboration and teamwork and leadership and that. Just because you have a certain rank doesn't mean you do certain things. Like if you can do things now, there are certain guidelines that you have to watch out for. So I grew up in that boy scout and army environment. And so it was a really big shock hitting the civilian world, seeing how many people had checked out on their ability to make change happen just because, you know, they're like, well, we need to do something, but we don't have a team for that. I'm like, you four people are complaining about it. You're the team. Mm-hmm. Go make it happen. And they're like, but we need to like, how do we do that? And I'm like, what do you mean? How do you do that? Right? And I'm not trying to say it in a way of like condescending. It, it was a mystery to me mm. that it wasn't common knowledge. And I was like, oh, well, it looks like I have some work to do. I guess job security for me. Hence the book. So I think labels and the valorization of labels is one thing. Two, corporate culture and some organizations' yes. cultures. And I'm just going to be real about that. Most organizations' culture, it's safer to be mediocre and to not do anything yeah than to actually try.
1: It's and we, dangerous to try. It's dangerous
0: some. to try. You can lose your job. Like, you can lose your job for making a mistake. Mm-hmm. You can't lose your job for just sitting in a meeting. Right? The other thing is there's a disenfranchisement with work. I say disenfranchised and people think I'm going Marxist. We can do that. But still, what I'm just trying to say is some people are just like, you know what? I just get paid to do a job. I'm going to do my job and go home Mm because that's what I'm here to do. And that's great. And I also want to remind those folks that work is inherently relational. So, yes, Mm -hmm. you're paid to do a job, but you're paid to do a job with people. And those people like you have their own needs and wants and things like that. And we have an incredible way as a team to make each other's lives better and do the work without it being a bunch of an additional work. What I want people to change their perspective around is to get away from just phoning in making work better and working better together because of their feelings about say the organization and the stupid top down policies or whatever that kind of, when I was like, Oh, that's there. I get it. Mm -hmm. I understand. I've been there. And at the same time, what about these four to eight souls that you work with day in, day out, that buy you coffee, that share inside jokes with you, um, that show up to your weddings, (laughs) that do all those types of things? like, why are those people not getting more of your attention? And why are we not taking better care of each other on that front? Because we have an incredible ability to do that. So when we, well, this is going to a little bit of sight here, Rebecca, but a lot of times when I'm working with my executive coaching clients, there's a thing that some of them do and I have to call it out and I call it out early in the relationship. What they do is create some idyllic, impossible to achieve scenario and then say, well, I can't do that. So I'm just going to do the status quo. Now, they don't say that in their head, but that's exactly what they're doing.
1: Well, our brain's wired to do that. Our, like our brains, brains are wired wi- to do
0: that. Yeah, and yeah, to yeah. answer your question, I think... A lot of people do that with work and why they don't make change because it's like, well, shit, I can't change everything, so I'm just not going to change anything.
1: I also know a lot of people that tried to change things and they just got shut down and they just kind of said, heck with it, I'll just dial it in. They got beat down, too, so they tried. Yeah. Um, but, but what did they, they try
0: to change is my thing. I'm sorry to interrupt. Right.
1: No, I, I think you're right. I think it's more of like, okay, how did you go about it? And how did you work with your team? I like the differentiation of team and organization too. So, and again, some systems are super rigid and, and closed and change is hard, but yeah. Yeah. yeah and I understand and I that. that. And I'm,
0: I'm not trying to present in team habits that you can change everything about your organization it's not in there because i you you can't organizations change slowly over time even ceos learn the hard way new ceos i'm gonna come in and change everything and then 3 years later they bounce out why <laughs> because of corporate culture and the team habits that have so much inertia that the system wins the system mm-hmm. wins most of the time when you let the enormity of the system continue to do what it does but when you start chipping away at what makes the system work people win Right? And so sure. that's what I'm trying to do in Team Habits is say, look, there's this massive system that you work in. If you try to change the whole system at once, you're going to be exactly as like you say, well, I tried to change it and it didn't work. But really, really, let's say I'm going to poke on meeting cultures, right? Because meetings, we love them, right? <laughs> no. um, you're like, well, I tried to change our meeting culture and it didn't work and we just had these stupid meetings. I'm like, well, we don't change meeting culture we change a collection of habits that we do in meetings. So we'll start with one. Let's just leave five minutes at the end of every meeting so that we can capture next actions from the meeting. In the moment, while we're talking about it, we assign who's doing something and by when. And very simple things that I talk about in Team Habits, you know, this isn't rocket mm-hmm. science. This isn't hard to understand. It's rocket practice. It's hard to practice and to do it consistently. So yeah. Throughout the day, I might say some things that are completely obvious. Like, let's have five minutes at the end. And we're like, yeah, 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 we get it. But do you do it, though? Let's get Mm -hmm. that in place. And maybe we work in a big corporate culture and things are slow. We just spend a quarter practicing that one team habit. Okay, great. And then we spend a quarter practicing getting update blocks out of our meetings. Because we can read an email about that. Right. We spend that quarter. So we got next actions at the end of the meeting. Great. Next quarter, we're just going to get the stupid update section out of out of the meetings. Cool. Next meeting, next quarter, we might put in some bonding and belonging stuff that we all like to do. Like we show up with the song, the favorite song we heard last week, something fun and cool. What we're doing is stealing time. So like if that meeting was 80 minutes plus or minus 20 minutes, even though it was supposed to be 60 minutes,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: we steal five minutes here we still 10 minutes there, we still 30 minutes there, we get that meeting down to a time that's appropriate, but fundamentally, we start looking forward to going to those meetings because we know why we're there and they're doing work for us and they're not pissing us off to do a bunch of pointless updates and things we don't care about, all the while we're stressed about the work we're not gonna, we're not able to get to that we're gonna get in trouble for not getting to. So for sure. that's what for we're sure. trying to unpack here. You don't change meeting culture. You don't change your collaboration culture. You change these micro habits and it takes time, but you know what? You're going to be showing up to work anyways. Might as well try to make it better because if you make it better for your team, those four to eight people, you make it better for yourself.
1: Yeah. And it really, that, that premise of change really happens in the context of relationships, not blowing things up or having a big policy it really through relationships, it makes sense. And it takes time. It's about putting in the reps. It's about staying curious. And that's not always what we're taught, either to be patient in those practices. So I want to bring back to my question, though, your vision to democratize who is a part of an organization's decision making process? How is that different? And I think you touched on that a little bit. And anything else you want to add on how that vision is connected to team habits?
0: Well, so how to democratize decision making, I'm doing it the same way that we've gotten from lean manufacturing, like the people closest to the work should have the most autonomy over the decisions being made about the work.
1: Hmm. Imagine that.
0: Right. The thing about it is, I decided intentionally not to push really hard on holocratic, sociocratic and anti-hierarchical governance models. right? Because we need to have a conversation about that, right? I don't know how much time we have today, Rebecca, but this is going to get me in trouble from all sorts of folks. Most people, most individual workers love the idea of more autonomy, of more decision-making, of being able to sort of do that until they're presented with the real work of that. Until they're presented (laughs) with, you have to make this $50,000 decision (laughs) and work through how to do that. It's your choice. And they're like, wait a second. No, 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 no. Or you have to make this decision that's going to affect the livelihood of 20, 25 people around you. Like, well, maybe not so much that, right? What I wanted is more decision-making about my work and my schedule and what I get to do. But you know what? You work in a team. You work in an organization. Every... In a team setting, this is what's different about personal productivity or sort of personal effectiveness and team effectiveness. Every action you take in a team context is a social action. Mm. It's not an individual action. So Rebecca, you as an individual, you can make all sorts of changes to your schedule. Like it doesn't matter until we're in a team context and you change and block off your Tuesday afternoon but I have work that I need from you on Tuesday afternoon. I can't get it from you, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. And so the reason you know we have to get real about some of these governance models is people want them. And again, I've done this coaching for the last decade and change and worked with some organizations to go to some of those models. And it's actually not the owners, founders, and executives that end up bailing on the project. It's usually the folks who really? were claiming that because they're like, because they won't make the decisions. They won't take the initiative. It really is a reprogramming of what it means to work together. Huh. And so I've seen more of those, those initiatives fail, not because senior leaders are like, screw it. We don't want to do it anymore. So a lot of these models take the functional roles of, say, executives and managers and distribute them to teammates and distribute them across the organization. What we've done in the traditional org model is we've we've equated the position with the functional roles. So executives are the strategic decision makers, right, um, and priority setters, and things like that. In the models that we're talking about, these um, new governance models, you take those roles and you distribute them across um, different people. That's great. People wanted until the really complex decisions that involve people's lives and jobs and livelihood get placed and like, Ooh, that's I'm not prepared for that. That's a hard decision. I don't wanna do it. I just wanna show up and do the thing. It's like, you can't really have it both ways on this one, right? And so again, this is gonna get me in trouble from all sorts of things, but we need to get real about that because in the same way that we don't take agency of our lives and our personal relationships, when you introduce some of these models at work, you see those same things happen. And so, Rebecca and I bump into each other. We both I'm hurt about it, but I decide that i it's uncomfortable for me to talk about it. And Rebecca doesn't know she bumped into me. So I don't take that initiative to do anything. And we let these frustrations creep. I could have reconciled mm-hmm. it the whole time with Rebecca. I just didn't. <laughs> it turns out, if you're really interested in democratizing decision making, you're actually going to have to talk a lot about the emotional components and the emotional and social components of making these decisions. And it's not as simple and easy. Like, and again, Mm -hmm. I learned this in the army because I was an officer and I had people like, it must be great to have your job, sir. It's It's a joke, they said it in joke. I was like, I tell you what though, you're gonna go with me tomorrow. You're gonna do everything that I do on my schedule. And I'm gonna consult you on every decision that I make that's not confidential. And you're gonna be in the driver's seat of doing my job usually after about half the day the troops would be like you know what um i kind of like my job um can i go back and do that now (laughs) (laughs) peace out right yeah Uh, because and i'm not trying to say my job was better it was different it's fundamentally the stakes are higher stakes are higher
1: and so what's coming up for me i don't know have you read cedar barstow's book right use of power no because if not i definitely check it out and, and she's coming on the show uh soon too and you know She talks about these different types of power, like personal power, and so many people kind of forget that they we're born with our own personal Mm -hmm. power. And there's so many systemic things, let alone things in our personal lives that cloud that. And then there's um, role power, status power, and institutional power, and just kind of the and then up power, down power, and Mm -hmm. all these different things to stay curious about. But I think there's there's something about power that's woven into this individual and systemic power that's part of this that I kept thinking about as I was reading your book.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Earlier in the earlier in the drafts of Team Habits, I was really clear that so much of the book is about power. And much like what I was talking about in the in the green room, I decided to Trojan horse that. The funny thing about it, as much as I've been railing against some of some of the challenges with converting into an anti hierarchical or sociocratic governance model if you practice team habits you are doing that
1: yeah it's egalitarian (laughs) it's
0: egalitarian you are effectively doing that and while you're having conversations conversations about power will come up um we don't have very good communication structures and facility with talking about power directly Mm -hmm. and so to make the book about talking about power up front Sets a yes. whole meta conversation of like executives are like, we're not really like we're in the middle of COVID man. Like, are we really having this conversation about power right now? And then on the flip side to have some of the real conversations with line workers around what the, emotional social and mental components of power and the relational, on all the things you talked about It's like
1: they're, they're like i'm trying to just breathe i'm Thank just trying to breathe much. man like we are just
0: trying to breathe and so you know for better or worse yeah. i decided in this one i was like we're all just trying to breathe and do better together what is the simplest way to talk about that
1: leading is hard Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned with your values, your mission, your teams, and your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. Now, I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading yourself and teams in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Now, leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It truly is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is both actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict with the teams you lead and in between your years, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity. That Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than you were taught. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. I'd love to pull some quotes from your book, because there's so much I wanted to talk to you about. And so I think I'm going to just pull some quotes and have you riff on it. And we'll see how many we could get through. <laughs> there's so many, so I couldn't pick a favorite. So they're not in any particular order more than just like the flow of the book. So you said in your book, if teams are working well or poorly, it's really not about the people on the team. It's about how they're working together. And before you respond, because a lot of people are like, well, we would be doing so much better if so and so wasn't on the team or if so and so showed up on time or so and so's attitude. Like, you know, so tell me more about how it's not about the people on the team, like whether they're working well or poorly. It's about how they're working.
0: I want to acknowledge that there are absolutely folks on the team that can drag a whole team down. For sure. That's absolutely true. And what I would say is, what is it about the team and org structures that allows that to persist long enough that it becomes a drag? Are you actually having the conversations that you need to, or is everyone phoning it in and hoping someone else like tells them like, no, honestly, you really do need to show up to meetings on time. Like that's not cool. Mm-hmm. Right. Who's having that conversation? Or are you just deferring that to your manager and deferring that to HR again, deferring it to someone else. Right. Um, It turns out that humans are incredibly malleable creatures, right? Yes, we are. And we are very susceptible to peer pressure. We know that, right? (laughs) And so if everyone on your team is like, dude, the meeting, like, we love you. We respect you as a person, but this is not working. This is uncool. You need to fix that. In whatever ways they talk about it, one of two things is going to happen. They're going to fix it or it's going to be so awkward that they quit.
1: And that's not a bad thing either. They can self select. That's out, not
0: a bad right? thing, right? Yeah, yeah. But if no one says anything and we put mm-hmm. all that burden on the manager and HR, that stuff can go on for like two years before they finally have enough of the paper trail to make the decision. Right. And so even in these conversations, it's how that's how the team works with each other. Right? Um, and so here's the funny thing. I'll try to be brief on this, but Rebecca, we, we have a – let's acknowledge that me being brief is, is, a, is a practice. Um,
1: <laughs> well, keep, keep 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 rolling. I appreciate it all.
0: Um, a lot of times people are like, you know, this person came in and then this team thing started and that they, they put it on the person. But when you really pay attention, that thing, that behavior, that team habit was starting, was, was in place before the person and it's thereafter. And this is why I get so much in my – um, professional feels about books, like it's the manager and the power of a great manager and things like that. Cause it puts so much pressure on one person to change the system. Right. And it does the very thing that I don't want us to do, which is say, like if we had a great manager, the team would be better. Mm-hmm. You can be a great teammate and make the team better. And that's how you all can work together. You can fit, you can correct, you can self-correct, you can self praise, you can self do a lot of those types of things in the team. So it's not about that one person on the team or not about the individuals on the team. It's about how those individuals come together and play well. And this is why when you see really powerful, enduring teams, people come and go all the time. If it were about the people, like one of those players would leave and the team like all of a sudden it's like, Oh, it's different. Well, I mean, it's going to be different because there's forming storming, normally performing. There's all those types of things. But when you look at really good teams that have, solid readiness, people can come and go and the team maintain a relative level of performance because it's not about the individuals on the team. It's about how that team as a unit works together. Teams, mm-hmm. especially in larger organizations, but i will say in almost any unit are the like atomic unit of value of organizations, individuals, not so much, Right. Teams are what create value. The interactions of members of teams is what create value. That's why I keep, want to keep us focused on team dynamics, team habits, team interactions, not necessarily Charlie's interaction with Rebecca.
1: Okay, so here's a segue to another kind of snippet that you, you wrote a little bit more extensively about the difference between a venting session mm-hmm. versus problem solving session. So let's build on kind of what you just said with talking more about how we as teams can start to identify. Are we just falling into because I'm like, like if we're gonna vent, is this to vent to really move things forward or is this just to offload pain and then you know, keep the status quo? Right. But tell me tell me more.
0: So I talk a lot at the very beginning of the book about broken printers, because every organization I've worked at or consulted with has a broken printer that everyone knows about, right? And it's some annoying thing that inevitably will trip people up five to seven times a week and create a bunch of downstream effects. And it's a stupid printer that's, a you know, it's $500 or less decision that no one makes to fix that's actually having fairly outsized morale Performance and belonging effects on the team, and it doesn't have to be a real printer. Although most of us, you know, mm-hmm. the CC thread from hell is a broken printer, right? Why do we do that to each other?
1: Why we, we all hate Stop. it, but we continue Stop. to do it? So, yes,
0: <laughs> um, that's an example of a broken printer. And so, you and I, Rebecca, as teammates, might be like, oh, it's a stupid broken printer." Like, yeah, man, it sucks every time, and like we just go on and we we get the emotion out,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: then we go back to work. That's a venting session <laughs> with right? the
1: broken printer. With still the broken still printer in- still there.
0: Knowing damn well, next week, we're going to be venting about the same thing, right? It gets old. It gets old. It's changed that from saying, you know what? What would it actually take to get rid of this damn thing? What is the process for getting a new printer, getting rid of that one?
1: There is that dopamine hit that you think you've done something by venting, but the problem solving involves vulnerability. It involves putting some investment in it, something on the line. It, It opens you up to exposure, but it's also... You know, your responsibility, you, you know, and taking using your power, your individual power, and also maybe collective power. So, and that's scary.
0: The other thing about about this book that came up is I would be giving talks about start finishing. It's a classic sort of thing where I would have senior executives and, and leaders be like, "We just wish people would take more initiative and own their own work and just stop bringing a bunch of small problems to us." Right. We just wish that we can do our jobs and they would do theirs. Mm -hmm. And then we'd have managers and line workers be like, we just wish that the executives would let us make decisions and give us autonomy over our work and just like not have to take everything to it. I'm like, you're both complaining about the same thing. Right. What is really going on here? It's the team habits and the culture in play. And so the difference between the venting session and the problem solving session is you're right. It requires owning that that thing that you just complained about is something you're willing to invest in changing and you're willing to risk having a conversation or you're willing to risk some time. We're short-term thinkers as humans by default. We just are, right? We're like, oh, I don't have time for it, right? I got to get back to work. And then next week, you and I spend 20 minutes venting about the printer again. We've got time. We got time. We have every it. week twenty minutes. Complain about the broken printer. Put it in your calendar. <laughs> right? What right. if we spent an hour or two to actually solve it? Not have to vent, and then maybe we can spend that twenty minutes if we if we if we're still in time to vent. We can still time. We can still time to to mess around with each other and have fun. Right?
1: Yeah. I mean, wouldn't you say though? There's maybe a little bit of a culture, or at least from higher ups, to empower folks to the permission or to, you know, remind folks about that too. I mean, isn't there like that? That, that would help.
0: It would like, absolutely go- help. It would okay. absolutely. I'm not <laughs> yeah. trying to. So as much as I've been to everybody, please hear me. As much as I've been saying the patterns that we line workers do, and where we get ourselves in trouble. I am fundamentally for us all, especially the folks down in that chain that don't have that. It's fundamentally for that. Right. Right. And I have to say, because I do a lot of the org change work and executive coaching work, um, how we show up in those conversations as line workers is, is a huge predictor of, of the partnership we're going to create with everyone else. So we're part of it. And yes, absolutely. Next book has already started to work on me. I hate that, but it's, it's where it is. It's really from the leader side. Like here's, here's what you have to do, right? The exact opposite of what most people think, right? And for that one, it's like saying like, look, our time, your time is valuable, actually. I get that. I pay for that. It's in the budget, we see that. If you are seeing things you can change within this amount of spend, if this amount of money, this amount of time, please make a plan. I I talk about a DRIP, a decision, recommendation, intention, or plan. Please suggest a solution and work it through Um, and let us know what you want to do. And we'll do the best we can to make that happen.
1: Okay. Tell me what you mean, what you wrote about, put your team values on the floor, not the wall.
0: Yeah. So this is about walking your values. That's, that's what I'm trying to do in that one. A lot of times we create team values or corporate values and they're just these like aspirational posters on the wall, like integrity and excellence and whatever, right? Value, right? Really broad words that we
1: hashtag really cool, hashtag no, really no. cool. We aspire.
0: <laughs> they're aspirational values. They're
1: but when moved, you look, yeah.
0: when you look at the values on the floor, what people are walking and talking every day, they're not those. Right. And it. so you might have innovation on the wall, but then have so many team habits and corporate work ways that prevent people from innovating. Well, guess what your real values are. Um, you know, as I'm working with folks, especially executive coaches and things like that, and, and founders, I'm like, here's the thing, your values, here's how I know what your real values are, what you promote people
1: mm-hmm.
0: by and what you fire people by, right? If those aren't actually in your stated values, your stated values are BS because people are going to do what gets them promoted and what gets them and, and not do what gets them fired regardless right. of what's on the damn wall. So your choices here are to either put the values that you have on the wall on the floor or put the values that you have on the floor on the wall. But this two value system is gotta go. It creates too much gaslighting and social overhead that's in the way of people actually showing up and getting good work done.
1: Amen. This one really stood out to me too. We have a bias in our society, especially in the business world towards making sweeping changes. Like if something's not working well, let's clear it out and start fresh, like burn it down. And then we'll just clear out what we built up, you know, in two years and we'll invest again, invest in something again, instead of staying the course or tweaking. And I really appreciated you bringing this up and love for you to speak a little bit more about this bias, especially for leadership. When they hear about complaints, they just want to get rid of it versus rumble with it.
0: We are, as a people, grandiose thinkers. We think in terms of <laughs> monuments and we think in terms of big, 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 right? And so um, to come in and be like, and again, it, some of the listeners might've heard me talking about five minutes into the end of a meeting, like, really? Really, bro, that that's what you're telling us to do? And I'm like, actually, that is what I'm telling you to do. Because that's not going to show up in your performance review. That's not going to show up. Like you're not going to be like high-fiving your friends about that, (laughs) right? It's going to be this really mundane thing that over time will have a huge difference, but we are social creatures. We tell stories that make ourselves bigger. We love a tall Mm -hmm. tale. We love fishing stories. And so that's unfortunately what primes us on how to think about things. And also, We're usually not good at decompartmentalizing problems. That takes a certain way of thinking and a certain patience and a certain diligence that we don't have the time for. Because by the time you're, you know, six minutes into it, you get the next text message and it's the next problem to solve, and you jump to the next thing. The other thing about it that I'll say here is because of grand sweeping things, we also in lighty cloths. Books subtract, everybody should read this, right? But Lydie pointed out so fundament so so just well that we have a bias towards addition and problem solving. And we neglect subtraction as a vector for problem solving. And so usually the sweeping changes are we're gonna get rid of it and then we're gonna add something. Or we're gonna build something, not we're just gonna delete those three things. <laughs> from it and once we delete those three things from it it's, it's basically there
1: <laughs> lastly you said many organizations implicitly or explicitly discourage people from bringing their whole selves into the workplace it's almost impossible to feel a strong sense of belonging in a team where you can express only a fraction of yourself tell me more about that quote
0: yeah i think what happens here is that um some policies about professionality and how you show up and how you posture at work get supersized across all contexts. Like in a, we, we understand intuitively that if we're at a full team or organization meeting, there's a certain way we show up. I ain't nobody Mm -hmm. got time for all the different quirks and, and things like that, but we forget again, it's about your team with your team, right? Like Rebecca might put her hair up, in the in the in the management meeting,
1: but top she does, knots for the win, but, yes.
0: But you know, when we're just <laughs> chilling back in our team, and and there's a reason I keep doing this. One because I'm fond of Rebecca, but I keep using teammates' names because you have to remember it's not a teammate, it's not this you know
1: concrete
0: mm. abstract thing. It's this person <laughs> that you know well, and you know Rebecca has you back, has your back, and you have her, and you know you have hers. It's personal in that way. Rebecca might be 100% polished in that management meeting and then come and curse like a sailor to me, (laughs) right? Because it's cool. She's a teammate, right? We understand that there are different roles, but I know who Rebecca is and she can switch in that way, right? And so she can be her full self in the team, if we build that with each other, if we build that with each other. So yeah, we can do that. Like I see, I currently see Rebecca's background. Like we might say that corporate, like no backgrounds, right? Because you might see something inappropriate. And then there's a conversation in HR and all those sort of things that happen. Right. But when it's me and Rebecca talking or my team talking, it's like, you know what, we're going to show up because we want to be together in a way that has the least social and emotional so overhead. So we can actually have fun with each other and be ourselves and get to work, right? We have to be at any moment ready to snap into snap into that. But that's where, so that's the team focus. From the corporate sort of side is like, really, mm-hmm. if your policies get supersized in that way, even if you don't mean for them to be, what you're essentially doing is making interchangeable cogs out of people. And yep. it turns out people don't like that. You yep. don't like that, right? so I just want you to take on the full cost of that because if you're in the executive seat making some of those issues and seeing this happen and not doing something, guess what, it's your broken printer. And if you allow things to happen that make people feel like they are cogs in the machine, you should not be surprised that they work like they're cogs in the machine and only as much as a cog in a machine will work until they can find a better machine to work it. That's on you.
1: I think the belonging piece, it's it I mean, people feel like they have to lose themselves just to get a paycheck. Yeah. And that we really need to move away from that. And that sense of with your team, that sense of connection and um, camaraderie, if that even expanded right? That actually really does help with retention. It helps with profit. It helps with, you know, all the things that a business wants and needs, but there's just still so much fear and scarcity around it.
0: Yeah. It's so much fear and scarcity. And I'm glad you mentioned that because from the leader's perspective, the, the main things that, that they all talk about retention, you, you got it, right? Talent cultivation and improvement. Working on your team habits helps with that, right? Um, innovation helps with that. Um, efficiency, Helps with that, right? All the mm-hmm. things you actually care about are solved by working on better team habits and especially belonging. And if, again, you treat everyone as irreplaceable numbers on a line, you should expect them to treat your your organization like a replaceable number on a line. So if you want them to be with you, you need to be with them.
1: Period. That's relationship for right there. We will have to be the same, but we have to really, to really create a culture of belonging means being comfortable with difference. Imagine that. (laughs) Imagine that. I'm curious that this. I keep coming back to like there's this these conversations we've been having right now with uh, folks who, you know, a lot of businesses that were traditionally all in the office. And then with COVID, a lot of folks worked from home. Um, Some companies were already a little bit of a hybrid mixture. Um, And now there's like, you're coming back or at least a few days a week, and this is connected to your performance review, or you're going to lose your job if you don't relocate. Um, And I'm wondering where team habits come into play with some of these. I think there's some other things that are in play too, but kind of like, we're, you're not getting work done if we don't see you. Is sometimes, or we need to fill office space. I've heard that from many of my clients. Like the boss will say, "I, I see too many empty desks here. Get people back in here." You know, but there's like, but why? <laughs> you know what I mean? If the you know the work's getting done, I'm wondering how, if leaders were really looking at your your philosophy on team habits, what would be different in some of their policies around work, whether it's all in the office, hybrid, or all remote.
0: Um, I wish I were the person that came up with this, but I'm not. And it's been around for decades. It's written by a guy named Peter Drucker, right? It would be management by objectives. Like, what do you, which we would say nowadays, management by outcomes, right? Mm-hmm. What are you actually trying to do, right? What is the outcome you're looking for? Be super clear about that. What are the outcomes you're looking for? What are the parameters that dictate like that, that are useful? And then what are the priorities? Like that's really what we need executives to focus on. What are the outcomes we're looking for? What are the parameters that, that we have to follow by? And then what's the priority stack? And so teammates, if they really follow like the whole organization and the team, the conversation would be not, I don't see. I don't see you sitting at a desk, therefore you're not working. It would be the outcomes we've agreed need to happen or that you know need to happen if, if we can't come to agreement are not happening. What we're doing does not, what the team, what the department is currently doing is not sufficient to meet that. Let's have a conversation, like explain to me why the goals and the outcomes that, that we've set are unrealistic or unmeetable and how that works, right? Because maybe you're seeing something that I don't see. So I'll talk about that in the in goal setting, um, cha- in the chapter on goal setting and prioritization. Like, there would be that reconciliation that it's not just that it, we came up with crazy ass, like, oh, don't get me on BX. Please don't get me on BX. Okay, I'm on BX. Bold, hairy, or big, hairy, audacious goals, right? Great. And we know there's this weird thing from, from goal setting um, science and studies. We are more likely to achieve a harder goal than a less difficult goal because we phone in the less difficult goals like oh, we can get it done then we don't prioritize it and then it doesn't happen we fall down on it but i think that's also been supersized it's like we're going to make impossible loon shot goals that's going to get people motivated to do that and i was like there's a time and a place right but leader's job in this one executives and leader's job is to really set those stretch goals that focus people's attention and then remove the BS and bureaucracy and roadblocks that keep people from achieving those goals because it turns out once most people and teams commit to a goal that is a little bit difficult but they think they can do it, guess what? they want to achieve that goal. You are at that moment of time aligned. Mm. Everything that happens after that in your workways and in your team habits is what you need to work on as a leader. You know, a lot of times when I'm brought in to do some of this work, and we're talking about alignment, and especially from these teams like, how do we get your teams aligned? I'm like, well, let's first, I just want to ask the simple question. Why do we assume we're not? What if we were aligned already, and there's something else in the way? <laughs> and of course, now you know what what that something else is. How it would look different is you wouldn't see what's been called the boomer power play. Of work happens in the office. And so you all need to come back to the office. Just guess that's how work happens. Well, guess what? It's 2023. Work hasn't happened that way for the last 23 years. Just COVID made, gave us an opportunity, right? Like it, it was a forcing function to break that mold. The real power play, while it's been generational, has been people who think in terms of outcome focused work. Mm -hmm. And people who think in terms of time and presence-focused work. And that is the fundamental paradigm shift. That if you can get away from that loggerheads, you can have much more fruitful conversations about in-office, out-of-office. Because it turns out, with their team, the way we're talking about team, I have to keep saying that. Me and Rebecca, we actually like talking to each other in a useful, constructive conversation two or three times a week. We might actually choose to come into the office together grab some coffee, work on the whiteboard, hang out, you know, we might choose that because I like mm. Rebecca. I don't need you to tell me to do that. But mm. telling me to do a bunch of stuff that doesn't drive my work forward and then a month later having a conversation with me about my work not being driven forward is fundamentally frustrating. <laughs> Like you created the very scenario that I'm now in trouble for. That would be the conversational shift. And so again, as we do more of this work, as I do more of this work and share more of what's coming in this next one, it's just like leaders, what are you injecting into the system that's creating the very outcomes you don't want?
1: In your book, you talk about the importance and you've touched on that in this interview. Today, this conversation today about moving stones instead of mountains, right? You talked about the big thinking, you know, grandiose and big things and it's really better to focus on moving these little stones and put in the reps. What What are you and your team working? What are the stones that you and your team are working on moving right now?
0: Yeah, funny. I was. We do this work much to my team's triggering because I'm like, can we just let things be for a while? And I'm like, it's... <laughs> a slightly broken printer it's not a broken broken but we could do better so this is a problem when you have a kaizen leader right because i'm like we can just one percent better guys we can do it right like not today charlie not today can i just do the work today um we are working a lot on our collaboration team habits um i'll get a little bit granular here we're using a few tools you know slack confluence asana and we recognize that there are two tools Rome. And notion that might eat all of them. Ooh. And so rather than having it split across three or four different apps and spaces and where does the information live and it doesn't quite work right? It's playing with like, do we consolidate in that way? And those are just straight up collaboration. Like where do we put where do we put task? How do we talk about tasks? Right. Do we are we okay as a team with the tasks tasking each other in Asana? Or it's got to be not in Asana, tasking each other in Slack. Because it's a default, right, that, that so many of us do. It's like, hey, will you do a thing, Rebecca? And you're like, that's mm-hmm. a task, right? Technically, that should be an Asana, <laughs> right? What are we doing about that? So working on those types of things. The other thing we're working on and we have been working on over the last two quarters is our meeting cadences. Um, we got into mm-hmm. a place in quarter four where there were just way too many meetings for everybody. Um, and so we did a meeting audit and it was just like, why who why why are we doing that because it wasn't me <laughs> that said do all these meetings it was the team having a lot of team meetings now in our language like a one-on-one conversation like rebecca if you and i just sort of pull it aside for 10 minutes that's that's a conversation that's not a meeting but they were having mm-hmm. full-on like two three team meetings a day across different teams and i'm like no wonder you all can't get anything done right i didn't i didn't say you can't get anything so they are falling behind i'm like why Right. And so it's funny.
1: You're for me. in meetings all I'm, the time. I'm like, you're in
0: meetings all the time. And I'm like, but why? <laughs> right. Um, and so it's funny being me in that way, because I'm like, I'm not the one telling you to be in meetings.
1: Not good. This is not
0: good. <laughs> like, what is going on here? And so that is one of those instances to where I actually, you know, as a leader, you have to adopt different postures and so if you're curious about this coactive leadership is a great guide so you got leader on top you know like leader in front leader behind leader beside you know I um, you have different ways and so that one I was like okay I need to be leader in front this one right because mm-hmm. this is something that's so endemic across the team that as much as top down decision making doesn't work in so many scenarios this is one where I need to have a forcing function for us to say, you know what, nope, we're not doing all these meetings. Uh, well, you
1: used your up power in a way to help create relief. Yeah,
0: to help create relief, because it's like, I, this is not working for any of us, and you're suffering and continuing to do so, and don't know, how, like, we have to fix this. I'm not gonna say that I'm gonna come up with a solution, but I'm at least gonna stop this team pattern, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And subtract, so notice it was a subtraction thing, right? So I'm like, we're gonna subtract.
1: That's a really good point too, as if we're making change, sweeping changes to lean towards the subtracting. That's a big takeaway for sure.
0: So we, we switched so that now we only have a team meeting every other week. Um, Turns out a lot of people are happier, stuff's happening, performances, like we're starting to reach our performance zone again and things like that.
1: Oh, I think it's a great habit for all of us to get into, to audit our systems and our meetings on a quarterly or some sort of regular basis and just go, how's it working? How's it not? And there's, I mean, I think sometimes in the past I would be afraid of that because I'm like, I can't do any more work. Like, People are overburdened or seasons of life or whatever, but that fear that, change or I mean, curiosity is going to lead to more work versus it's actually going to free us up um, really is is the end game. So I appreciate that. I appreciate that. And one thing you noted too, it, you didn't spend a lot of time on it, but it stood out to me that when teams are working through big commitments and the stones, um, that it, inevitably there's some inevit- individual losses as you move towards the collective wins. Yeah. How do you and how do you help your team move through those losses, individual losses, while you're working through the bigger wins with heart and compassion.
0: Thanks for pulling that up because I think that's what's not acknowledged when we start changing things, even if you're subtracting things. Yes, grief. Someone put that there. It's grief. And Mm -hmm. it can be mistaken, especially in overly optically focused um, organizations. (laughs) It could be taken as a status loss. Like you removed my thing.
1: Totally. Right. Right. It was (laughs) my
0: idea and you removed it. Right. And so there's all that sort of thing that's in place. So first acknowledging like, hey, Rebecca, like I know six months ago, you had this idea that we would do the funny joke block of the of the meeting. And it was super fun. And it got us bonded right now. But it's kind of feeling a little stale now. Kind of like to change it to something. But I know it was your thing. And i appreciate it and it did his job and i really really loved it but how are you feeling with it are you like what's going on like are you open to changing that like where are you with it right even if you even if rebecca still loves the funny joke block she might be like you know what though like maybe it's time for something new too right like i can see that we're in Mm -hmm. this relationship with each other and there's some give but i wasn't just like rebecca that's stupid We're not doing it anymore, right? Um, It's a waste of time. Like, no, it it served its purpose. It served us well at that time and it took really, really good care of us at that time. And we have evolved, right? That's the thing that we forget about. As you work through your team's performance and as you get better about working, the, the training wheels and the things that you needed in an earlier stage, you might not need anymore, right? And so that block that I was talking about, that financial review block, those, might be training those are training wheels now to get us all used to revenue stream ownership and to align and prioritize work around that and some other things that we're going through as a company. Six months from now, we may not need those training wheels. This small mm-hmm. team that we have may just be at a level of readiness and context and know-how um, and team habits that it's just sort of embedded knowledge and we can roll the hell on, get our 25 minutes mm-hmm. back. We don't need to keep talking about it. We did it. Or we might go through a cycle where things get crazy again. It was like, hey, remember when we used to do that? Well, we're not doing our habits. We need to do that again. So my point is, just because something's not working for you now, doesn't mean that it didn't work for you in the past. And doesn't mean that the person's good intentions and good ideas and good heart can and should be dismissed. If Rebecca put the funny joke block into the meeting... I want to go back to Rebecca and say, that was seemed like a great idea and it did some good work for us. What do we really need to work on now? And pull Rebecca into that process to help me co-create the next great thing versus just shutting her down and excluding yeah. her and say, you know what? That's old and busted. I got some new hotness. Deal with it. Cool, cool, cool.
1: <laughs> totally. <laughs> Oh, my gosh! yeah, that's those are all really, really good points. and I feel like that's almost often when I talk about even with our when we're trying to change our own individual habits, right, or practices and things that we've done that maybe were comforting us but comforting us in ways that we're doing harm, uh, but they served a purpose. So I just really appreciate that external compassion shown too as we as we wind down, what is your relationship with your team today and how has it evolved over the years?
0: Hmm. That's a broad question. What is my relationship? You know, I'm always I always feel sort of awkward about these conversations because I was like, you should ask them.
1: Fair enough. They're not here on the Fair podcast, enough.
0: right? So they can't speak for themselves. Um I appreciate that. Um well it's as big-hearted as I can be, and as much of the coach and friend and guide as I can be, I also pay their checks. And there's an inherent power dynamic there. Right? And I just want to acknowledge that, that like even if and I do believe that they would tell me the truth because they've told me plenty of truth, right? And we've, we've we've opened the door for that, right? You know, they're still that place to where their relationship with me is is a part of their livelihood. And so I take that very, very seriously. So as best as possible, I try to, te- to treat my employees much more like they're my clients. I'm, a, I'm an executive coach and, and things like that than, than the folks who work for me, right? And fundamentally they do. So my relationship with them, um I think it's deeply and frustrating collaborative for them. Right. Um this sounds s- pretty human. Yeah, in the in the sense where I try not to make a lot of decisions on their part, and so they have to make a lot of they have to make a lot of decisions. I try to give them um I I don't even like saying try to give them autonomy. I try to set it up so that there is autonomy as much as possible in their work. Um, right now, because I'm in the middle of a book launch, they need more from me in terms of feedback and guidance than the time that I have um, available with everything else that I'm doing. And so that's probably the deeply frustrating part of the collaboration. My default is not to be a leader in front, to be honest, right? It's really not. It, in the best ways as being a leader and being a teammate, like I'm not around And that's a good thing because the Mm -hmm. things that I've set up allowed allowed us to work without me being around.
1: And has it been evolution over the years? Has it always been pretty constant for you to not want to lead from the front?
0: It's been fairly constant when I know it's my role. So, for instance, in the Army, there are plenty of times where I had a leader in front job. That was the job. I was the face. Okay, that's my job when it was my time to be that, but when it was in the small team with my leaders, I fundamentally, I don't know your troops the way you know your troops, right? I don't know what they're working on to the degree that you know they're working on. So I had a few rules, like one, don't make me chase you down to figure out what's going on with your projects and assignments, right? Because then I'm doing two jobs. I'm doing your job of communicating with me. Um, And I'm also doing my job of managing you. I only wanna do one job. So you do your job, I'll do mine, Mm. right? Um, and just simple things like that. And like, Hey, if you need me, I'm here, but my job, as much as I don't like it is to sit in this office and be the sort of, you know, switchboard for priorities and tough issues. Um, and so that was the job then. And there were times I needed to be up front and needed to do the saluting and the parade and all that sort of what and I did it and I did it well, but that wasn't my fun. That wasn't the fun part for me. Right. My fun part was actually, Seeing my leaders and teams excel with as little guidance or with as little interaction from me as possible, so I could focus on the things they couldn't do. So that was easier to do there when I'm, you know commanding two hundred and nineteen troops than when you know I have a smaller team because like it actually is my job <laughs> to make sure they get paid. So like it's just it's different. But I try to invoke as much as that because, Here's, here's my theory of human nature that drives so much of this, and I write about it in Team Habits. One, people are inherently goal-motivated. Two, they want to be in good relationships with other people. And three, and it feels like the same as the first, but it's not, they enjoy getting stuff done. How do I, as a leader, as a founder, as an owner, as a teacher, set up the conditions where people get to do what they already want to do? and be who they already want to be. And what's in the way of that? And what do I need to add so that that happens?
1: I appreciate that. Thank you so much for sharing that. And where can people find you and connect with your work, get your new book, and get access to anything else that you've your body of work that you've put together?
0: I appreciate that. Thanks so much for having me first. Um, So All roads lead back to productive flourishing. You'll be able to see prior bodies work, but also team habits. But if you're really, really interested in just team habits and the conversation we're having today, go to betterteamhabits.com and you'll learn more about the book, but also learn more about the writing that we're doing around this as well.
1: Really, thank you so much for this conversation. My brain is going a mile a minute. I've been taking notes and other things too. So you really are a wealth of knowledge and I just appreciate your presence. in so many businesses and organizations uh, lives, and also just speaking um, truth to BS um, in so many of the business and entrepreneur spaces. So, just grateful for you and your heart and uh, the impact that you have, and really wish you all the best with this book. And I cannot wait to have you come back again to talk about the next one, if you're willing.
0: <laughs> I am definitely willing. I appreciate your time, and listener, I appreciate you. I know we've gone a little bit long on today, but hopefully, it's been worth a while. Thanks for being with us.
1: Absolutely. Before you go, I want to ensure you take away some of the incredible wisdom Charlie shared with us today. Charlie challenged us to put our values on the floor and get them off the wall. He also encouraged us to focus on changing micro habits over time instead of trying to make big sweeping changes, which can often lead to burnout and us tapping out. And lastly, and I really valued this, Charlie shared how the things we care about can be solved by working on better team habits. Imagine that. Now, after listening to today's conversation, did anything shift in how you see the way teams can impact change? What is a micro habit you and a team you're on can focus on changing and measuring over the next few months? And if you lead a team, what can you do to help your team have the space to do the work that they can do with the least amount of bureaucracy and burdens. Oh gosh, we breathe in the messages like a fire hose about how much we need to change our personal habits to see the results we want in our life. But we learn today when we focus on our collective habits, we not only change individually, but we change as a team. And this is the ongoing work of an unburdened leader. Thank you so much for joining this episode of the Unburdened Leader. You can find this episode show notes and the free Unburdened Leader resources along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com. And if this episode meant something to you and was impactful, I'd be honored if you left a rating, a review, and shared it with someone who you think would benefit from it. Thank you so much for listening.